Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, or if you are watching this video later on, good day, or if you're listening to the podcast, again, good day, greetings. Thank you so much for being willing to take some time and uh, contemplate uh, with me. So there are a few things I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about the uh, inner debate I have between streaming consciousness versus scripting. And I want to talk to you about guns. I want to talk to you about the philosophy behind uh, gun control versus gun rights. I want to talk to you about the constitutionality of the matter. And I want to talk to you about a few key statistics uh, that I've gathered in some of my research today. And I want to talk to you about my vision as I am beginning to cultivate it. And that's where I uh, want to start here. So you see, uh, and I've got a different lower third. Uh, this is a process of experimentation, you see. That's wrong. I apologize. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, you can't see the visuals. And so the context here, mm -hmm. uh, you'd be uh, missing out on that. Uh, one good reason to check out the video. Uh, anyway, so today I want to begin by talking about the integration here of politics, culture, and introspection. And specifically why I like this particular integration after having sort of contemplated uh, the focus points that I really want to hone in on here uh, during this uh, public comment uh, video blog experiment that I am undertaking. I say um, that this sort of begins by thinking about things culturally. And when I think about culture, I think culture is actually pretty darn uh, all-encompassing, right? When we think about culture, at least what I think about culture, I think we start with philosophies and ideologies. Um, what are the attitudes and beliefs and fundamental values that are held uh, around us uh, that we're subject to or that we subscribe to or that we don't subscribe to and that therefore influence our thinking? Um, and what about the economy and the role that the economy plays in our culture? The things that people produce, the things that people do with their time uh, also clearly something we would attribute to our values. Um, and I believe that this has a lot to do with consciousness, which is why I think that introspection is really important. I think it's really difficult to grapple with one's culture without asking oneself, you know, what do I think about uh, my experience in this culture, not just academically, but personally? You know, how do I feel about it? And I don't mean to say, like, how do I feel about it, like, getting all caught up in the emotions of it. Like, I'm sad, I'm sad, I'm sad, I'm sad, I'm depressed, I'm depressed, woe is me, and let me fixate on my depression. But I mean, like, what goes on in my mind because I'm a human being and I'm experiencing this? You might call it almost um, literary or artistic or holistic uh, in that sense. And then there's the politics of it because uh, the fact is we are subject to rules. And uh, these rules have to do with the combination of our culture and each of us and the degree to which we introspect, both how it's going to make us feel and what it's going to make us think and, you know, what we're compelled to do about it or not compelled to do about it. So I'm really interested in this sort of uh, paradigm for the public comment blog as uh, my themes, my motifs, if you will. And uh, with that, I'm going to do a bit of introspection here and uh, bring to you an interesting conversation I was having uh, with my wife. And I'm just going to double check here and ensure that my sound is working. Uh, so if you forgive me, I'm just double checking that my sound is working here on the live stream. Um, yeah, okay, I can confirm that it is. Thank you for your patience. Right. Uh, question of improvising versus scripting. This is an interesting conversation 
I was having with my wife while she was uh, watching a recent episode of the public comment video blog and podcast series, and she said that one thing that was on her mind was the question of uh, was it taking was there too much lag time from thought to thought to thought in the way that I was talking and did it lack a sense of uh, crisper uh, preparation and presentation and did that hurt the product and I said you know in my opinion from one perspective that could be uh, but from an entirely different perspective my perspective I'm also deeply interested in extemporaneous speaking. I'm interested in the experience of spontaneity and improvisation and stream of consciousness. And I'm interested not in a sort of pure stream of consciousness, uh, something done without foresight uh, and preparation and contemplation, but what it means to actually sort of stand back and uh, put some thoughts together and prepare some things that are on your mind without deeply finessing it with perfectly revised language, but have a sort of outline of thoughts that you're centering on and present them uh, in this kind of venue. And uh, the thing is, the reason, one major reason why I'm really interested in something more stream of consciousness and slightly spontaneous in this context is uh, I consider this to be just talking. Talking versus writing, let's say. And I can explain that to you and what's making me think about that. Um, the difference between talking and writing to somebody, right? Um, when you're writing, the purpose of writing, of fantastic writing, is not just to communicate, uh, but the better you are, in my belief, uh, the, the better you are at fine-tuning the precision of the words, and that's, that's one of the most joyous aspects of writing for me. Talking is a slightly different thing. Of course, when you talk, you want to be accurate, of course. Uh, but when we talk to each other, if we were so pedantic that we had uh, entirely scripted monologues, I think you'd be losing a sense of intimacy and truth of the moment and a sense of the directness and the experience. Uh, moreover, frankly, when I think back to uh, the radio shows that I used to listen to when I was a kid, uh, Howard Stern or Roberta Gale on New Jersey 101.5, uh, programs like that, one of the things that really interested me was the fact that these people just sort of go and they just sort of tell you what's on their mind, where they are, when they are, and so that's something that I'm interested in doing. Um, also has to do, I'm not going to lie, I'm an impatient person. Um, I'm, I could spend a lot of time and I could write down a thought, but the truth is, and I think I've said this before, it would just take me, I think, um, a really long time to be happy with what it is that I've written. Whereas, if I'm going to say, uh, these are the things I want to talk about, then I can sort of immediately acknowledge that I'm not going to have the words perfect, but at least I'm going to know these are the things that I really wanted to talk about. These are the things I really wanted to touch on. And these were some of the key points that I really wanted to start from. So it's a lot about starting points and material. That's uh, what I really have in mind. All right, that would, that would be the first point. Uh, but there are other considerations here. Indeed. Um, another thing for me, is that I consider talking just an entirely different context altogether. And I think that um, as the economy is changing, and as technology is changing, and now we live in a world where people can circulate blogs and video blogs and podcasts, and we have just so much more access to so many different kinds of media and art. 
I think, I believe that um, there is a need for more direct conversation between us and that there's a medium of just direct conversation and um, on that note similarly and this is just sort of an idiosyncratic thing or uh, an element of my personality uh, the fact is that oftentimes I find myself in a situation where I really want to tell people stuff and I just don't get the time to do it uh, or if I were to tell someone everything on my mind, the email would end up just too long or the phone conversation would just go too long. I mean, I have so many things I just want to talk about. So it would seem to me that perhaps a rational remedy would be to just talk my thoughts out. Moreover, um, I'm just really interested in like this notion of communicating with people as I've talked about in previous episodes, sense of purpose, this notion of um, how uh, the more intimately we can know each other and know what's inside each other's minds and talk things out. When we know each other better, we can therefore have a greater understanding of each other, greater awareness of each other, more empathy, and a feeling of deeper, more intimate understanding community. And that's something I'm just deeply interested in doing. and. That could, of course, be uh, achieved through writing, but I'm interested at this moment in time in achieving it through talking directly to you. I just want to talk to you, whoever you may be, uh, because it's such a gift to have the opportunity to be alive and to be able to talk to the world, talk to humanity at large. Uh, that's That's an amazing opportunity. And... To do it in a sort of scripted fashion, to do it in a sort of extemporaneous fashion, um, I think that in one case, it, again, it's about the context, it's about the medium, and I think it's also, um, I, I, I think that we live in a time now where talking is being more explored. If you look at the popularity of talk shows, uh, whether you think about it from the left or the right, uh, Rachel Maddow or Sean Hannity, if you think about it in terms of the, the increased popularity of the podcast, if you think about you know how successful Howard Stern was, really, I mean, half of him was humor, but another half was the fact that he just laid it all out and told you what he thought. Also tends to be the fact that one of the most popular writers of our time is James Joyce. Um, guy who just sort of bars his mind. So I'm interested in this this notion of just barring out the mind, sharing the mind, and uh, being intimate with you, and being direct with you, and honest with you in that way. Again, on a more extemporaneous, uh, in a more extemporaneous fashion, I think there's just something very revealing about it, and I, I do believe that it's a new way to get to know people, is through just talking to each other. And we didn't have this medium a hundred years ago where you could sit down and in front of a camera and just literally talk to anyone uh, that was willing to listen. And what that means for how it changes the way that we talk about what we talk about, the content, right? Um, and the impact that we can have, the impact we can have uh, in discussing matters of consequence, matters of consequence, and uh, that's going to bring me very soon to the uh, important discussion on guns. Tough topic, but it um, needs to be talked about. And that's where I go now. Yes, I want to talk to you about guns. As you may know, there was another school shooting in Colorado yesterday. Uh, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, uh, because that's on a live stream, today is May 8th, 2019, and I'm talking about 
the uh, school shooting that occurred yesterday, May 7, 2019. This happened at a STEM school. Uh, I believe it was kindergarten through, I want to say kindergarten through eighth grade. Um, might have even been at K to 12. Issue of concern here would be very few issues of concern. First of all, all of these shootings are unacceptable. All of these are devastating. All of these are tragic. My heart goes out to everybody who is affected and to um, loss of life. Uh, to, to those who are grieving the loss of life here, this is obviously a deeply upsetting situation. I mean, it also happens to be the fact that I, I don't know if you've read the articles on this or if you've seen any pictures of, or video. I should have prepared a picture of this for you. Um, but you're talking about little kids who have been exposed to this stuff. Middle school kids exposed to a school shooting. That's insane that they should have to experience that in life. Um, there's a lot to talk about with respect to the controversies surrounding the existence of guns and the question of whether there exists uh, such a thing as a right to possess a gun. And if there is such a thing as a right to possess a gun, or is this a conditional right or is this an unconditional right? And why or why not? Uh, which means there's a lot of philosophical conversation to be had on this. Nothing that I could complete in a single day's worth of uh, chatting with you, but certainly some things that I want to bring up. And I want to begin by talking about the value of life and how that fits into this conversation first and foremost. Um, before I do that, uh, this is really important to me. I, I just can already anticipate our critics on the right who just um, get very insistent on some of their uh, talking points. I had made comments on my social media yesterday um, outlining some thoughts I have on guns. For example, I do believe that we should amend, uh, that we should abolish the Second Amendment. I do not believe in a unilateral, unconditional right to bear arms. I don't believe in it. I think that's silly. And I do think it's likely that so long as the amendment is written as it is, it would seem that there will always be a technical, logical grounds uh, to fight against um, statutory gun control. Because if the Second Amendment is adamant and explicit that the right to bear arms should not be infringed, then, I mean, it's pretty cut and dry what it says, right? Right? Legally, you're not supposed to bar people, prohibit them from owning guns. We should make it unequivocal in our constitution or in our laws. Fundamentally speaking, in U.S. federal code and statute and law and legislation, etc., we need to make it clear, in, in my opinion, that uh, no person may simply want to go get a gun and buy it. We have to make sure that we have tough laws that prevent that from happening. Um, even with the gun control we have, people still get access to guns. They can still go in various states and go to the Walmart and buy a gun and things of that sort. But there are a few statistics I want to talk to you about. Um, first of all, right, let's, let's talk with one of the more interesting talking points that I received yesterday from um, those uh, ardent among you who feel very passionately that um, you want to hold on to your guns and that there should be little of any legislation uh, in the way of that, right? One of the talking points is this, that while the United States may see a lot of homicide that is gun related, there's a lot of homicide in other countries that's not gun related. Therefore, homicide isn't so much a homicide problem in the United States, but a gun homicide thing. 
And in fact, in other countries, there are homicides through other weapons that outweigh the homicides uh, through guns in the United States. That's not true. I mean, there is no solid evidence to back that up. So what I want to refer you to, to begin with, is some numbers by the United Nations. Um, you, I'd love for you to check out this statistic. This is uh, what you're looking at, is a ranking of um, homicides, the statistics of homicides uh, throughout the world, which country tends to uh, see more homicide and which country seems to see less of it. So for example, if you look at um, El Salvador, right, more people per 100,000 people are murdered in El Salvador than based on all the evidence that the UN could compile anywhere in the world. Uh, on, the, on the bottom there, right, you see countries like Sweden, Portugal, uh, Tonga, countries like that. Um, I definitely encourage you to check this statistic out. Um, this is just sort of a look at where you can find that on the web. And next, what I want to show you is uh, where we rank here among the various countries. United States ranks um, 83. And do we have that on our chart here? Yes, we have that on our graphic. Uh, United States ranks 83, if you want to look here, 79, 81, 82, 83. I'm not sure where 80 is and why that's not on the chart. Uh, I'm not sure what the explanation is for that oversight, um, but that's, that's the infographic I have for you from the United Nations. Uh, again, United States sort of 83 out of 157 countries looked at uh, with roughly 4.9 people for every 100,000 uh, murdered in general uh, based on UN uh, numbers. Now, the conversation's been had. Uh, in fact, uh, one of my Facebook friends is the fella who made this uh, claim in the United Kingdom, the UK, England, Great Britain, whatever you want to call it, uh, there are a record number of stabbings. And so we should not be worried so much about uh, guns and homicide in America, but look at all those stabbings out there in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Um, so where exactly does the United Kingdom rank in the numbers? Uh, homicide in general first, if you want to take a look. Uh, 163 out of 157 countries uh, examined. So for every 4.9 out of 100,000 people are homicide, uh, suffer from homicide in the United States uh, versus in the United Kingdom, less than one person for every 100,000 people is murdered. That's regardless of weapon. This is just homicide in general. More people die in general of homicide per 100,000 people in the United States than in the United Kingdom uh, by a substantial amount. A substantial amount. Uh, and so people talk about this... Um, stabbing stuff in the UK, right? And um, what do stabbing statistics look like? So if you were to look in the United Kingdom, in between uh, March 2017 and March 2018, there were recorded 285 fatal stabbings. You can find uh, the statistics in The Economist. You can find them also in USA Today. Uh, it's not a disputed uh, statistic, uh, as far as I understand. Um, 
And you could think about that number. How does that compare to the numbers in the United States? So it turns out we do have access to this information compiled by the FBI. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's what I'm showing you a picture of right now. Now, interesting thing here. If you were to look at how many stabbings versus population, uh, this is a very interesting thing. So roughly speaking, there are about 66 million people in the United Kingdom. Out of that 66 million, there are 285 stabbings, right? So if you put that in a fraction and then a decimal point, you can get a sense of sort of what that uh, value looks like when you do the division. Um, this would be compared to, say, take the state of California. In California, there were recorded 280 st stabbings in a population of 39 million. Now think about that alone. In again, in the United Kingdom, that entire country of 66 million people, 285 fatal stabbings. In California, where there are significantly less people, there were 280 stabbings. I mean, I think if you do the math, correct me if I'm wrong, that almost looks like you're twice as likely to get to die from stabbing in the state of California than you are in the entire nation of the United Kingdom. Uh, and the numbers aren't too flattering in Texas either. In Texas, uh, out of a population of roughly 29 million, there were 175 fatal stabbings. Again, that means uh, more people, there, there's a greater likelihood of getting stabbed in Texas, being stabbed to death in Texas than the United Kingdom. So these people who go on and on about that nonsense of, oh, you want to complain about homicides, gun homicides in the United States, just look at the UK. Well, maybe they don't have a lot of gun homicides, but they have a lot of stabbings. Hey, we've got twice as many stabbings in the state of California, pretty much, uh, versus uh, UK, if you look at it in terms of likelihood and within the population amount. So I just think that's a bit of nonsense. And uh, these are numbers compiled by the FBI. This isn't a meme. I think this is uh, credible information. So let's just get this point uh, clear. There is a very serious homicide problem in the United States, and there is a serious gun problem in the United States. These are both problems, okay? Now that we've got that out in the open, let's just have a conversation about the value of life for a second. What is the value of a human life? What is the value of a human life and how does that impact the way we think about gun policy? There was another uh, shooting, school shooting last week, I believe it was, the University of North Carolina. And I was just reading a profile on someone who was, uh, on the young man who was murdered trying to uh, stop the shooter in that situation. Young guy, a uh, university student who actually essentially tried to pin down the shooter and got shot as a consequence and died and his life was lost. And then you start to read about the father and mother and his girlfriend and you just start to think, I mean, this is a human being whose life was ended because someone had a gun who should not have had a gun, who was mentally unstable, who had nothing but ill will, belligerence, and who was clearly insane. 
And so as we contemplate, forget Republican, Democrat, National Rifle Association, lobbying, policy, all of these things. Let's just think about the mere fact that it so happens that people are obtaining guns who shouldn't have them and innocent people are dying as a consequence. And you have to therefore ponder the philosophical, ethical, moral question. If people are needlessly dying as a result of people obtaining guns who should not obtain them, should we or should we not do something about that? And to say no, in my opinion, is really just to be negligent of the value of human life. It's to depreciate human life. It's, it's to be ignorant of the value of human life. It's a destructive way of thinking, in my opinion. It's just pure destructiveness. Um, th that's not to say that I think necessarily if you are a uh, ardent gun rights supporter who is concerned about gun control policy that you have bad intentions. I don't mean that at all. Uh, but I do mean to say I would argue that the chain of reasoning and thinking that leads someone to have no interest in gun control policy uh, would appear that that's just a destructive uh, way of looking at things uh, by default of negligence and depreciative outlook on the value of human life. Life is too short, whether, e even in my opinion, even in my opinion, if you get to live to be 172, uh, I don't believe that's ever happened, but you know, uh, one of my dreams in life is to live as long as I can. And no matter how long I'm lucky to live, it'll be too short. I, you know, I've heard people have conversations say um, they don't want to live so long. I just don't, I, I don't uh, relate to that. Uh, but that aside, I, life is damn short. And I don't know about you. I, I'm not a Christian or a Muslim. Or one, I don't have a religious belief that uh, gives me the pleasure of a belief in reincarnation or heaven or the afterlife. I'm not even sure I believe I would be a ghost. I don't know that I believe in ghosts per se. So life the human experience, consciousness, I mean, I believe very possibly, you know, snap of a finger and it can be taken away from you. And the snap of a finger, you can lose the ones that you love. And, you know, it's funny because some of my critics on Facebook yesterday were accusing me of over-emoting in my protest of current United States gun policy. And I said the irony here is actually, you know, I may feel emotional as I reflect and allow myself to feel about the situation, but look at it very coldly from a very detached perspective, very logically. And it comes down to the value of a human life. If you can do something, to protect human life because you value it, then you would be moved, I think, to do things that would work in that way. I would argue to stand back and allow more lives to be lost at the hands of people who have some severe mental problems and go on shooting sprees and say, Oh, you have no right to tell me I can or cannot have a gun. That's just negligence. That seems to be, I don't know, authority issues. I don't want to psychoanalyze. Um, but this kind of like, I don't know, 
what it is, anarchy kind of way of thinking where there should be no rules in life. If you value human life, there has to be rules. And those rules have to include keeping weapons out of the hands of unstable people. And then you have the argument that people make, well, who's to say what a mental illness is? And I say, you know, mental illness is not ambiguous. As someone who suffers from uh, severe anxiety, the truth is, and panic disorder, I mean, there's nothing ambiguous about a panic attack at all. It, it's really quite an, uh, it's really quite a um, discernible issue. Uh, when you have a panic attack, you have a panic attack. It's not uh, theoretical. When you feel depressed, it's not theoretical. When you are um, unstable, that's not theoretical. You're tangibly unstable. When you walk around and clearly need someone to talk to, that's a tangible experience. You can tell when someone needs someone to talk to, also. Um, not always, but my point being that if we interact with each other and pay attention to each other and care about each other, and you wonder, is someone getting the mental health treatment that they deserve? I mean, this is just logic 101. If you don't give someone mental health support in general, I don't care how psychologically healthy you are, everybody should get mental health checkups all the time. Um, we should get mental health checkups at least what, twice a year at, at the very least? I don't know what the official recommendations would be from a academic perspective, but just logically. Anyone who thinks that they can be psychologically omnipotent, in my opinion, is just illogical. Because the, the human experience proves that we can't be psychologically perfect. We're not perfect. If we're not perfect, just as we can't be academically perfect or logically perfect, we can't be psychologically perfect. Which means, right from the get-go, we should all get mental checkups. And I don't mean to say we're all crazy. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is it would seem logical that it's probably a good idea that everybody have a therapist to talk to from time to time, to check up on them. And if we lived in a society where people get frequent checkups and you'd be able to gauge much more objectively if someone appears to be in a disgruntled state of mind where probably they shouldn't have, an, they shouldn't have access to a gun, where they, there would be red flags that say this is a little disconcerting and people say oh well when you let the state have uh, too much of a say of what you know would constitute mental illness i mean there's to me so many hypocritical things that come with that statement i mean you're talking about a country right now where under the trump administration you won't let uh the Trump administration won't permit transsexuals to serve in the military because of concern with uh, how that would enable them to be efficacious, essentially, or how that would interfere with efficacy. So, not that I advocate that position, um, but this does come from the same group of people that tend, and I'm not trying to stereotype or make a generalization, but there's a tendency there, where these are the kind of people who are all for don't come take my gun, right? The irony being, uh, therefore, that um, 
same people who are concerned about uh, who should be allowed to use weapons in a defensive way are the people saying you shouldn't tell people who can use weapons in a defensive way. It's hypocrisy. Utter hypocrisy. Right? That's, that's one way to look at it. Um, but another way is this. Like if you talk about like prescription drugs, right? True or false, you need a prescription for opiates, painkillers, right? True or false, painkillers in the hands of the wrong people lead to overdoses, death, and not just to the individuals who necessarily have first access to the drugs, but to those they sell them to. True or false? So why is it that, for example, the Trump administration and a large swath of Republicans are all happy to start examining the opiate crisis in this country, whereby individuals are dying of overdoses, uh, painkillers, who shouldn't be, and they want to spend money on alleviating that problem. But guns fall in the hands of the wrong people who murder others, and somehow that's okay? I mean, the hypocrisy is mind-blowing. It's utter irrationality. There's no... It's not an emotional thing. It's, again, it's cut, dry, pure, cold logic. I just don't buy this nonsense. This, this uh... I just don't buy these arguments against further gun control. And that leads me to a rather abstract but necessary conversation if we're to have a responsible and intellectually responsible conversation about gun policy. That is two questions. What is a right and how do we determine how do we determine this? This is a very important fundamental question. What is a right and how do we determine this? There are three fundamental ways to sort of start talking about gun policy. And you're going to hear the word fundamental from me a lot because I'm a man of principle. And I'm a man of logical analysis. You can't arrive at an opinion without a basis, right? You have to trace how your logic moves. I think we call that reasoning, right? Or another word might be logical analysis. And, and so you have to start with fundamental principles. So to arrive at fundamental principles, you have to look at your most fundamental concepts also. And we have to be asking them the question, what is a right? And this is going to depend. Uh, this is a, there are different dictionary definitions. I'm going to offer a definition. I'd like to see the dictionaries use. Um, it's not necessarily though. If we look at um, the definition of right, definition, um, if we are to search um, Merriam-Webster dictionary offers the following definitions of a right. Being in accordance with what is just, good, or proper. Well, that was the adjective. I'm looking at the noun, so forgive me for a second here. Um, qualities that together constitute the ideal of moral propriety or merit moral approval or something to which one has a just claim. The power or privilege to which one is justly entitled. Something that one may properly claim is due. The cause 
of truth or justice. It's a tough concept, this concept of a right. And it's interesting how we can live in a country where we are so gung-ho about our rights without really having a solid understanding of what a right is and should be. And why we say it's so. Now, I find us to be in a tough situation when we have words where there are a lot of definitions. And in this case, I sort of play the part of philosopher and try to propose possible definitions that we can work with. Um, and if you want to use another word to perhaps uh, uh, make this conversation better, I'm all for it. Um, but I want to offer you one definition of a right. And I'm going to write this down for you. My definition of a right. A thing one should be allowed to do. I believe that we could refer to a right as a thing one should be allowed to do. Oh, the be able to, should be permitted to. That's not going to work though. It's uh, the notation doesn't work here on my uh, Chiron. So, right. Right. A right. Uh, things one should be allowed to do. Let's try this. You have to forgive me, ladies and gentlemen, as I'm in this more experimental uh, phase of uh, this video blog and podcast series. I am working with new technology software that I've just got my hands on within the last seven days. And I do this as a sort of solo enterprise. Um, things I have to do it by myself. Um, it's been asked, I don't want to go too much of a digression here, but it's been asked, why do I not just pre-make videos? Uh, because I could be a lot more, um, I could do a lot more with that pre-made video and do more editing and things. And I guess that uh, I just enjoy the live concept more. It's also a fact, I think you might be able to reach more people technically on Facebook when you go live, I believe speaking in terms of algorithms, if I've done my research correctly. Anyway, um, also live, I can interact with you. I'm always encouraging comments and feedback. Um, I want to integrate what you have to say and your comments and your concerns and your thoughts. I'd like to eventually have uh, guests, interviews, dialogues. I'd like to eventually um, have, if people do not come on uh, and sit next to me, I'd like to have people Skype in or I can do some uh, and things like that. So uh, things that are coming up in the future as public comment evolves. Uh, but back to this conversation about um, things one should be allowed to do. What is it one should be allowed to do? And how do we say what it is someone, how do we say what it is someone should be allowed to do? That's what we're getting at. What is a fundamental right.
I'm just playing with the Chiron. I apologize uh, for those of you who are listening to the podcast or watching later on. Now, I've got a few thoughts on this that I've been devising for many, many years about rights and the question of what it means uh, to say that you should be allowed to do something. And in my opinion, you have to first, I mean, you have to get really philosophical. You can check out my uh, video blog website, publiccomment.blog, and you can check out, um, I've got videos and such that you can watch where I sort of outline this a little bit. And um, let me show you the link here. I'm just going to do that for you. Okay, so now I'm going to... Uh, so I'm just playing with these really neat um, graphics and alternate uh, camera cards that I can use on uh, this new software. I'm trying to um, get going here. Is this going to change? Uh, it doesn't appear to want to work, so I apologize about that. Uh, damn technical difficulties. Um, but if you check out publiccomment.blog and you will see I have a um, letter to readers about this blog and you can see um, that I sort of articulate my fundamental principles. And what I'll do is I'll take a screenshot of that and share that with you. It's um, I'm getting faster at these things uh, so that I can do that. Because um, it would probably get annoying for me to say the same thing over and over again all the time when the fact is I have a um, means to refer you to something else. So I just think these things look cooler um, when I can do that. So I'm going to go to edit. I'm going to go to crop. I'm going to show you to the link so that you can see. And I'm going to go to save a copy. And I'm going to then show you a picture. If this works correctly, um, media files and there's the screenshot sorry so i do encourage you to check out public comment dot blog and my letter to uh letter to the people who come and visit my blog and learn a little bit more about um fundamental rights and um, how I've derived at these things and what I consider to be um, sort of the basics of my philosophical uh, views when it comes to politics. Um, but essentially, what I have to say about is this, ethically, you really can either view things in the sense that you are for sustaining and improving human life or you are in favor of being rather destructive of human life in my opinion and so you have to ask As we think about the issue of rights and what we should be allowed to do, what rights 
enable us to live better and which, uh, which philosophy of so-called rights would be detrimental and damage human life. This is a tough conversation because you have to ask, um, in a world without knowing there is a God who can proclaim authority, what principles do we have that would argue, what, what, what logical proof do we have that humans should thrive, let us say? Why should we say that you ought to thrive? How can we say one ought to do this or ought to do that? Uh, you know, essentially, is there such a thing as ethics? And how do we come to a foundation of ethics? If we're going to really have a valid conversation about gun policy here, uh, because it's so consequential to human life, we must have a conversation about ethics course, um, there's a lot of implications even to that, right? There are epistemological questions and there are a lot of philosophical questions. And you see how nuanced, if you really care about the getting to the bottom of justice and truth, that you have to get abstract if you really care about it. You know, people may ask you, Someone asks you, what's the point of philosophy? What's the purpose of philosophy? Well, your philosophical point of view is the difference between whether or not you think someone has um, unbridled access, someone has the right to unbridled access to a gun to kill you or not. It's our sense of morality. It's our self, sense of self-preservation. I think if we look at things from a scientific perspective and we understand that human instinct tends to be towards survival, we understand our instinct is, is therefore to sustain ourselves, um, that there is a sort of um, biological incentive to ethics an evolutionary incentive to ethics um, and the sense of like preserving humanity. But there's another way to look at this. Uh, at the end of the day, I mean, you have to get really fundamental. Should humans even exist or not? And if they shouldn't exist, who are you to do away with the existence of humanity? And so this is where you get to an even more fundamental question of authority. Who among us has the moral authority above any other person or the political authority? Because in terms of rights, you're going to have a link between ethics and policy and say it is ethical that policy A, B, and C exist. But who gets to say? And why do they get to say? What's the moral, ethical rationale behind that? It's a very important question. So, ladies and gentlemen, that leaves us at a good um, cliffhanger for conversations that could be had later I told you that it wasn't going to be um, a success on my part to fully expound on this topic, but I wanted to bring up some points that I believe are worthy of our consideration as we contemplate this topic and try to have a more constructive understanding on how we want to approach this moving forward. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to check out my Facebook live uh, stream, uh, for checking out my YouTube channel, for listening to my podcast, for checking out public comment uh, blog, or wherever it so happened that you were able to um, encounter this. 
you can encounter this on various platforms. You can find me on YouTube. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Spotify. You can find me on public comment, comment blog. There are a lot of ways to find me. You can find me on Twitter as well and LinkedIn. I'm all around, ladies and gentlemen, and happy to talk to you. And I want to encourage you to give me your feedback. I want to encourage you to tell me what you think. I want you to comment. I want you to raise questions. I want you to share your um, logically substantiated assertions, arguments, etc. And also, um, you know, the fact is, it would be, I think, a really cool thing if I were able to um, perhaps sustain myself a little bit uh, through this endeavor. So if you're interested in seeing more of this, um, please do spread the word and share and tell other folks about this. I, you know, the whole self-promotion thing honestly gets annoying to me. So I'm not going to like spend too much time on it, but I just do want to say, um, if you did think that there was any value to this, um, that you would tell your friends and stuff. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. And I look forward to chatting with you again very soon.